GQ's Mad Influence is presented by Moet et Chandon. Life's memorable moments must be Moet et Chandon. Welcome to Mad Influence. In this podcast, we've been talking to people who represent what I've been calling the long arc of creativity. People with long, fruitful, constantly changing creative careers. These kinds of career paths are kind of a marvel to me because I think so many artists and creators, most maybe, are flashes in the pan, even, even really good flashes. They have a moment and then it's gone. So much rarer and harder to find those people who keep flipping the script, who keep defying expectations and creating something different. So we've talked to actors like Ethan Hawke, relative newcomers with their eyes on the longer prize like the director Damien Chazelle, constantly restless and innovative chefs like Dave Chang, Today, my guest is a man who has worn many hats and worn them all exceedingly well. Frank Rich. Currently, he's the executive producer of two of the best shows on television. Veep, which returns for its seventh and final season in early 2019. And Succession, the breakthrough HBO hit of the year about privilege and power and a family that bears a striking resemblance to the Murdochs and maybe a few other powerful families. But Frank Rich took a surprising and fascinating path to get here. He had a long run at the New York Times as theater critic, the most powerful critic of his kind in modern times, once dubbed the Butcher of Broadway, which I always thought was crazy because few writers have loved Broadway and theater more. But apparently Frank Rich could kill a show with the stroke of his pen. He's also known to a lot of loyal readers for his essays on politics and culture, the ones he wrote for years for the op-ed page of the Times. I maintain that the op-ed page has never been the same since he left. But thankfully, he continues to write these sharp and pointed essays for New York Magazine. More than almost any other writing around, these essays take big, ambitious stabs at addressing the politics of the moment and the often wild currents of culture flowing underneath them. They make sense of the world. They make sense of Donald Trump. And who can do that? We have a lot to talk about today. So, Frank Rich, welcome to Mad Influence. Hey, thanks for having me, Jim. So, I want to ask you about the sort of long haul of your career and... um, You've done so many things, as I said, worn so many different hats, from legendary theater critic for the Times to political essayist to now TV producer. And I was thinking about what the through line is of all that. And one thing I ties them all together, in my mind at least, and I wanted to ask you if this is true, is your appreciation of the art of theater and narrative, whether it's the dramatic structure of a play or the absurd magical realism of a political narrative that people are buying into. Is that what is that the through line for you? It sort of is. I mean, that's I, very astute. Um, uh, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I would say that uh, I grew up in Washington, D.C., in a family that was not in politics. And I grew up in the city, not the suburbs. And I got interested in political narratives. It, it was almost like a kind of theater in a way, even right. as I fell in love with the actual theater because I was a at a very early age, I think being taken to damn Yankees and seeing a musical about the woebegone uh, Washington senators beating the Yankees for the pennant right. got me started in the 50s. So I was always very conscious of how things unfolded in D.C. because I was keenly aware that things like the White House, the Capitol, Congress were like sets. Mm-hmm. And the real city was sort of the backstage and people coming and going in the wings and my stepfather was sort of a, what you'd now call a K Street lawyer, so I saw some of these oh, really? people come to uh, my house, uh, and I realized there was something going on. And indeed, in writing about politics, I always like the story. And uh, the one book I wrote that was solely about politics was about the 
uh, narrative of how the Bush administration sold the war in Iraq. And indeed, when I was when I was writing the book, the first section ended with mission accomplished. Yeah. The second section opened with, wait a minute, where are the WMDs? Mm-hmm. And I realized it was sort of like the first act finale of a musical right. and then the quiet number that opens the second act. So it's, it's all sort of uh, blended in my mind. And then, and then in working in television, of course, it's all about trying to find a narrative that works and characters and um, in a lot of it, what the television I've done is fictionalizing the kind of stuff I've written about as a journalist, like politics. Well, I thought it was interesting because the subtitle to that book is The Decline and Fall of Truth in Bush's America. (laughs) (laughs) The good old days. Yes, it's true. And and in the book, you even called the Bush administration's response to 9-11 brilliantly produced. If you had a postscript to write, what would you say about the decline and fall of truth in Trump's America or how brilliantly produced that devolution is? Well, it's interesting. Obviously, the decline and fall... In retrospect, you know, we're starting to look at Bush as if he were Churchill, you know. Right, exactly. It's a quaint narrative (laughs) now, isn't it? You know, Nixon is now a paragon of integrity. Um, Trump, whatever else is to be said for Trump, and I don't think this is an intellectual attribute, but he is an entertainer. He knows how to keep the story moving faster than anyone, including the press, can keep up uh, with, with him. He always has something up his sleeve, and so... If something bad happens, he'll manufacture an incident, like allege- a reporter allegedly laying hands on a, on an intern in the White House briefing room. And he'll even change the film if it happens. He'll change the film, to. yes, in a kind of Lenny Riefenstahl Stalinist yeah. way. That is his one great talent. As far as the truth goes, he doesn't even know what it is and is, and is so locked in his own bubble of falsehoods that he feels he can say anything and, and, you know, I don't have to rehash the number of, you know, untruths or lies that he's been caught telling just since he's been uh, inaugurated. I mean, you have written a lot about how politics became the line between politics and entertainment blurred. Um, that seems to be a sub-theme of, of your book, but also mm-hmm. of a lot of the essays you've written. Do you buy the narrative that we American voters opted for Trump just because he was more entertaining than Hillary Clinton. I'm not sure. I, I buy part of it. The part of it I buy is that, of course, he's more entertaining than she is. I would argue that almost anyone is more entertaining than she is. Uh, she's just not a natural politician, and she's a wonk. Mm-hmm. And far, he was also more far more entertaining than the rest of the Republican field than Jeb Bush or whomever you want to talk about, Marco Rubio. But I don't think that's the reason he got elected. I think that um, the reason he got elected drew directly out of the crash of uh, 2008, uh, the fact that uh, there was this huge recession. Um, there was a feeling, a correct feeling by uh, on the part of many Americans that the people who orchestrated the, you know, the whole crisis, particularly on Wall Street, got away with murder, got off scot-free or bigger than ever, could laugh all the way to the bank while normal American, ordinary Americans got shafted, you know, with holding underwater mortgages and all the, you know, uh, savings accounts that were decimated, 401ks that were decimated. And I'm a big admirer of Barack Obama and, and much of what he did. But the fact is, and he and was also he deserves credit for keeping the country from falling into a real yeah. depression. That said, uh, he didn't, there was no policing of the people who had brought this uh, on Democrats and Republicans alike. And so I think 
I think people are really angry at the establishment. And I think this Obama left office, it was a bipartisan feeling. And Trump, possibly not even intentionally, because it seems kind of counterintuitive that a, a billionaire or a supposed billionaire who's a certainly of the top 1% in any event, could present himself as a populist hero. But leaving that flim-flam aside, he figured out that that he could tap into that anger. And indeed, while he and Bernie Sanders are very different, and I don't mean to derogate Bernie Sanders by using Put them in the, the same, same sentence. Same right? sentence <laughs> but, but, and, and their constituencies were also somewhat different. There was an overlap because they were both speaking about the same thing, Trump crudely and hypocritically, Sanders in an informed way and sincerely. Um, and I think that anger is what he tapped into and continues to tap into to some extent. In your book, The Greatest Story Ever Sold, one of the things, one of the constant refrains is this disappointment with the press for not questioning the narrative. And I don't think that you can say the press has been as passive as it was during the Bush years but still, it so often feels frustratingly ineffectual. Part of that is that in constantly questioning the storylines thrown up by Trump, the press loses sight of all kinds of other issues. We don't talk about education. We don't talk about climate change. We don't talk about banks and de deregulation. We hardly talked about health care until, you know, some of the polling during the pre-election day polling showed that people really cared about it. So it seems to me that we talk about the theater that is Trump. We react to the daily, you know, perambulations of his deranged mind uh, and his tweets. But as someone who loves theater, is that a mistake? It is to some extent, but I would... Look, no one is more critical than I am about the press during the, the run-up to the Iraq war. It was horrible, including uh, at the New York Times and the Washington Post. Terrible. I mean, and, the, and by the way, the, the major networks, forget about cable... NBC, ABC, and CBS, you know, NBC, they were flag buttons. I mean, yeah. they, they did nothing to question it, uh, the the false, uh, the fictional case for war, and the Times and the Post didn't do enough. What's happened under Trump is somewhat different. Um, first of all, the investigative reporting has been superb, yeah. really superb by lots of people led by the Post and the Times, and to some extent, some of the networks, including CNN, that... Trump rallies were overcovered in the campaign and that the press is too easily attracted by Trump's diversions and entertainments. All that's true, but I'm not convinced it's the problem. Uh, it, it's definitely true, and I think, but I think the problem is actually worse and beyond the press's ability in that what's frustrated me about the press and as a member of the press is the people that love Trump don't care about any of it. Trump was right. He could pull out a gun on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone, and it could be covered on live television like a scene out of a new a remake of Patty Chayefsky's Network, and people would say, that guy brought it on, and the guy who was shot brought it on himself or herself. They don't care that Trump University was a fraud. They don't care about Stormy Daniels. They don't care about his taxes. They don't care he's probably colluded with Russia. And so you have all this really great investigative journalism and it, we eat it, people like you and I eat it up, but the people that might change their minds don't. They either don't even consume it or they're watching the state television or Fox or they just don't care. I think one of the things that I think is quizzical, even maddening, is this idea that if politics is a story, this president is an unreliable narrator. 
So the storyline changes every week, every night. There are constant through lines. The border is scary. America is being taken advantage of. But there are more contradictions, reversals, and turns than there is a consistent plot. And I think it's really easy to get lost in that, like a, a rat mm -hmm. in a maze. And I wonder if that's why you've started to broaden the lens in your own writing. You, you wrote a, a terrific piece about how the establishment of New York, predominantly a Democratic town, enabled and emboldened Trump. The Hillary Clintons and Chuck Schumers, the elites who went to his wedding and looked the other way when he amassed a fraudulent empire. Was that your attempt to kind of go wide and, and say, hey, look, we're all missing the bigger point here? the bigger picture here because we're immersed in the daily inanities of Trump land, basically to like reset the narrative. Yes. I wouldn't say that my thinking was as noble as you as, as, <laughs> ascribe. And I, I appreciate it. It's very flattering, <laughs> but I would say that there were two things going on in that for me. One is that you're exactly right in this labyrinth of crap that, that he throws out every day and the white house throws out every day. You get lost in it and you want to stand back. Um, Oh, that's always been my habit. I've often felt that my view in politics was shaped by the fact that as a as a teenager in Washington, D.C., Washington had a, it still exists, but this is pre-Kennedy Center, the National Theater was a, a touring house for Broadway shows where a lot of, in the days when Broadway shows tried out out of town instead of in previews in New York, they would come through and, and um, be rewritten before your eyes if you were like me hanging out there so much that you, the manager took pity on you and hired you as a ticket taker, which I was. So I, I had this whole period of in my formative years in junior high school and high school of standing in the back of the theater after taking the tickets and looking at shows and work and seeing how Neil Simon and, and Mike Nichols were going to fix the odd couple, the <laughs> second, second act, which they did in Washington, and having that perspective on things. So I've always liked the wide view. Even now I like to watch a show standing in the back of a theater if I can. And so that's p part of my sensibility, but it seems to be particularly served me well during Trump. Yeah. Um, the other thing is that uh, what I like about writing at New York Magazine is, and what I, I grew tired of being a columnist writing every week because you're always on that treadmill of indeed whatever thing is being thrown at you at that minute. I like being able to stand back and looking for a longer view. As a writer, it's more fun to write that kind of narrative. It's more interesting to me. A lot of people can write a very uh, good anti-Trump screed, you know, and saying his horror and horror, it, all the things we know, that democracy is being destroyed, he's a criminal, all of which is true. That bores me as a writer, so I keep trying um, to dig deeper and look wider. And so a lot of the pieces I've been writing, and Trump's a great subject for a writer. Yeah. Um, whatever, you know, I, I don't know if I'd be writing these pieces if Hillary were president or Jeb Bush were president. Well, he's also uh, got a long trail. Too. He's got a long <laughs> yeah. trail. And so um, I find it aesthetically satisfying as well as politically satisfying to look wider, look deeper, try to find a narrative and try to make sense of it for myself in a way that's beyond the momentary things which you can never freeze unless you're writing every day, you know. And I, I do short hot takes, too, for the magazine's website. But these bigger essays, I um, that's that to me is the creative satisfaction. Hey, I want to take a quick break here to thank Moet et Chandon, 
As you know, because you've been listening, Mad Influence features personalities and performers who shape our culture, focusing on moments that have mattered most to them. We explore artistic breakthroughs and the hard-won discoveries that have helped forge legacies and define careers. The stuff, in other words, that's worth celebrating. So it's fitting that this season of Mad Influence is presented by Moet de Chandon, who has stood for celebrations for over 275 years. As we examine the ingredients of some pretty unforgettable creative careers, we're grateful for the support of the world's most loved champagne and for their encouragement to celebrate Life's memorable moments. So many people know that you were dubbed the, the Butcher of Broadway for the power and influence of your reviews, mm-hmm. which of course didn't always hew to popular opinion, and for the reputed power of your negative reviews to shut down a play. But probably many fewer know how you got that title. Wasn't it the comic known as Mr. Bean, Rowan Atkinson, who deemed you the Butcher of Broadway? How the hell did that happen? Rowan Atkinson is actually a very talented comedian, did a a review on Broadway that I barely remember. I reviewed it. It wasn't very good, but it was like a mixture of stand-up and maybe some musical acts, and I panned it, and it closed in a week. Now, I should say, for all my reputation, shows like that that closed in a week— they got bad reviews from everyone. They didn't just get bad reviews from the Times. So it got it yeah. got lousy reviews. I wrote one of them, but I was considered more powerful because I wrote for the Times. So he then went back to England where he's a celebrity then and now and like held a press conference or gave an interview and they said, What happened? He said, I was panned by the butcher of Broadway and that and that began began it. And somehow it it traveled uh to America and um it's you know it's sort of hilarious. I I I ultimately you have to embrace something like that. And uh, but I was very controversial figure in England, less because of Rowan Atkinson, who I only reviewed that one time, but because of Lloyd Webber. That's what I thought. Yeah. And I was literal, literally, I have somewhere stashed in a desk, front page, pages of the British tabloids in the 1980s, with Lloyd Webber attacking me. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, with huge New York Post-style headlines. And I actually had a situation once where I was chased through Heathrow by paparazzi trying to get a comment from me about whatever, Starlight Express or something. Anyway. Beatlemania meets theater criticism. Yeah, it was, in, you know, it's such a weird, forgotten world. You wrote a piece toward the end um, which I found again in your collection, Hot Seat. Right. Um, this was in 1993. You wrote about the last, as, as you were leaving that post, about the last dying gasp of the Broadway musical. And you said that in reconsidering the musicals of even the 50s and 60s, quote, I realized that even at the time I should have known the genre as it existed was doomed. But since you've left, we've had a great renaissance of Broadway musicals, you know, mm-hmm. since that Book of Mormon, Hamilton, Dear Evan Hansen. What happened? How did the last dying gas become a cultural renaissance? Well, it's interesting. I mean, yes, when I wrote that, when I left, the, I wrote that piece when I left the drama critics' job. So it was like roughly 1993. So at that time, there were Sondheim musicals. Yeah. And there were all these British spectacles and, and even worse, American imitations of them. So several things happened. And also Broadway itself was in terrible state. People don't remember it now, but now there are lines of producers waiting to get an empty Broadway house. Theaters like the O'Neill, where the Book of Mormon is, sat dark for seasons at a time. No one wanted these houses. So I was writing from a very perspective. The first thing that happened after I left was Disney came in right, producing musicals, whatever one thinks of them, and also restoring the Amster- New Amsterdam and leading to a revival of the Times Square 
for better or worse, is sort of a mall-like neighborhood. And then finally what happened was popular music actually liked by young listeners finally got a foothold on Broadway. And, And I would say to some extent that's true of the Book of Mormon, but of course it's obviously really true of Hamilton. Mm-hmm. And that was a change. When I was growing up and rock came in, Broadway was oblivious to it. Joe Pat put on hair and it moved to Broadway. Burt Bacharach did, wasn't even rock, but he did one show with sort of modern pop music, Promises, Promises, around the same time as hair. But otherwise, no one thought of saying, hey, why does why don't you ask Laura Neer to write a musical or yeah. Bob Dylan or Paul right. Simon or uh, uh, Lennon McCartney. Yeah. They they were completely clueless. So Broadway musicals kept sounding like pop music of uh, the My Fair Lady era, and, and the audience kept getting older and older. So it didn't take rocket science to figure out how to do it, but it took decades for a new generation of producers, including the producers of Hamilton is a perfect example, to, to figure out why don't you have someone write in the actual idiom music that people listen to when they're streaming music, rather than try to recreate Lerner and Lowe or Rodgers and Do you go to as much theater as you used to? No, no. <laughs> I am. Um, did you did you kind of burn out on it? I yeah. I think one of the reasons I left, the, decided to leave the job was to be a theater critic. You really have to have a tolerance for the crap. I mean, anyone yeah. can like a great show, and I had an endless tolerance for crap. I and you <laughs> know and 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 again, going back to my ticket taking days. Sometimes the shows of a tryout in Washington you knew were going to be smash hits on Broadway. Like I saw the tryouts of Fiddler and Odd Couple and Barefoot in the Park, Hello Dolly. But a lot of them were terrible. They were done by people the same caliber as Jerry Robbins and Mike Nichols and Bach and Harnick, but they were flops. And I loved watching them. I loved watching them try to change them and fix them and fail to fix them. And as a critic, I enjoyed seeing that stuff too and writing about it and um, had a real passion for it. That started to evaporate. And once I left the job, and once it started to evaporate, I knew I had to leave the job. And then once I left the job, I felt I really don't want to waste my time seeing junk anymore. I just, I lost interest in it. So... Sometimes I wait for the reviews. Uh, oh, my God. The reviewer <laughs> uh, waits for the reviews. Uh, and, and you know, I go a fair amount, but I really try to pick my shots. Also, what happened, which is sort of a weird thing, is once I left the job, I could do something I always wanted to do, which was become friends with theater people I admired mm. and respected, and I, and I have. People like Sondheim. Or Sondheim, yeah. who I yeah. known a bit you know when I was for, very young, yeah. and, but I've become very good friends with over the past yeah. since I left the job. And I know lots of other people, too, now. And whenever I go, you know, it's known I'm there and I can't walk out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I never walked out as a critic either. But so now I really don't want to waste a night. But I'm but I'm very passionate and, you know, even doing a lot of work now in three different cities in the past 
month, I've seen, you know, a couple of things I really loved. And, you know, what was the last great show you loved and you thought, I would have loved to have sung the praises of this show? Very recently, this, this, this crazy revival of Oklahoma at St. Anne's mm. Warehouse in Brooklyn that began at Bard College with no one in it anyone's ever heard of that took this show. I, I like Rodgers and Hammerstein shows, but to me, that's always sort of been one of the less interesting ones. And, you know, I've never really seen a good production of it. And this was something without changing a word and being totally faithful to the score made you think about America, made you think about the America that produced Trump. It was, this production wow. was conceived three years ago, pre-Trump. It doesn't have any Trump in it, but it's, about, you know, it's, it becomes something about nationalism, uh-huh. but also about, um, people being excluded from society. The character Judd is sort of reconsidered. He's not played like a Rod Steiger, you know, bully like in the movie. Like a, um, It unlocks something that actually was in in the show as Oscar Hammerstein wrote the book mm. that I uh, had never seen before. And in fact, I, after I saw it, I had a lengthy phone conversation with, with Steve Sondheim, who uh, was a protege of Oscar Hammerstein and just talk, you know, and just talking it through because suddenly I thought, oh, there's a reason why this appeared three years after Our Town. There's similarities in it. Mm-hmm. Our Town was the, the the work of a gay writer. So was Oklahoma based on a play by a gay playwright, Lynn Riggs, who's forgotten now. Mm. And there was, I suddenly I was looking at them in a whole different way. And even though that's not explicitly the the theme of either show, suddenly you feel there's a much more complex vision of humanity in America. Chicks and ducks and geese but scurry When I take you out in the Surrey When I take you out in the Surrey With the fringe on top Watch that fringe, see how it flutters When I drive the mouse and strutters Mosey pokes will peek Shudders and their eyes will pop. The wheels are yellow, the upholstery. I'm trying to figure out now how you make this transition to your next job as producer of Veep and Succession. It is a really giant leap because you're going from, as much as you might have loved theater, you're on the other side of it. And um, as much as you might like writing about politics, you're now writing acts and scenes and how did you take to it was it was it did it feel intuitive of a jump yeah i mean it happened sort of by accident in retrospect a lot of it was intuitive but i was real you know i i have this thing i just get sick of doing something for too long so i had i had quit the drama critics job after 12 13 years of doing it i was really getting tired of being a columnist i felt like i was sort of a monkey on a string I felt I had a real contribution to make during the Bush years. Obama, once he was elected, less so. Uh, I, st- I started to get bored, and but I didn't know what I wanted to do. By coincidence at that time, I was approached, as were some other journalists, by two guys who had just taken over HBO after a shakeup there. If I wanted to consult, and which was nebulous, but meant sort of... It was a period when HBO was... Um, Cupboard was getting bare. Sopranos, Six Feet Under, yeah. Sex and the City were nearing the end of their runs. HBO had famously passed on Mad Men and 
Homeland and Weeds and Dexter. And Game of Thrones wasn't out yet. Game of Thrones was not remotely out yet. I started doing this, just looking at stuff for them, and I had the option to produce, which I didn't quite even know what it meant. Yeah. And without going into the whole story, one thing led to another. I developed a bunch of stuff, but the, but the one that I ended up producing was Veep. Meanwhile, I had decided to leave the Times job and go to work for Adam to write longer pieces, and that was going to be my full-time job. And when I left the Times, we were just making the pilot of Veep, uh, which I made with the correct – it turned out not to be correct, but with the expectation it would never be picked up and become a series because usually that doesn't happen, and I'd had a couple of things that had in development that had died. And uh, uh, so I, little did I know it would take over my life. And then I got really sucked into Veep. And then the next thing I knew, it had taken over my life. I was writing less and less journalism, and uh, I've been – you know, and. I remember standing in, you know, Baltimore when we were shooting the pilot and thinking this was my fantasy as a kid taking tickets of being with a a show out of town that's being rewritten every night. And I didn't quite know what I was doing, but I got dug in, got involved, learned a ton and continue to learn a ton. And um, I felt, why didn't I think of this years earlier? Why did I not go into the theater instead of writing about it? <laughs> You know, you can't ask yourself those questions. I mean, I always like prose writing. And I don't write, as a producer, I don't write scripts. I'm in the writer's room basically all the time at Veep and in succession a fair amount as well. But it's more, you know, I pitch things and, and have opinions about things and can be a sounding board. Um, but I actually have no interest in writing a script. I really like prose writing. And so, um, and that's, and dealing with script anyway is only a, part of the job of producing there's so many other right other things from you know key art for a poster to casting to, to putting out fires every putting day out right? fires yeah. every other minute dealing with a network all that kind of thing yeah um and i'm sure that part of what you're doing is also like just thinking of the the beats of storylines that that are interesting and taking and keeping the whole uh narrative in mind for the what the show yeah. hopes to achieve right yeah i've worked with really gifted showrunners who do that, but I can help help guide a bit or at least bounce things around and um, be part of the conversation uh, without having to deter, you know, in the end it's up to the, the writers to do what they want to do. But I feel I can play a role and I love doing it, but I also love dealing with actors and I like dealing with crew and, and, you know, the network and, all of it. It's really very, very absorbing. And it really, you know, I think as a child of divorce, I f- fell in love with the theater. It seemed like a family I wished I had mm-hmm. instead of my own family. I have a very wonderful family as a grown up now, but but I also have this sort of additional family with these shows that, uh, you know, as we're I'm approaching the end of seven years of yeah. Veep, it's wistful yeah. to, uh, uh, See, know that we're going to disband in about five weeks. Oh, man. Did you have discussions as you were creating it, um, and do you sometimes still have discussions, about how low to go, how venal to go, because how, how much cursing and sex jokes to allow, about how grim of a picture of politics to depict? Because all of it, the language and references are not just strong, they're purposeful, full throttle, and I love that about it. 
And the venality is so comprehensive, there is almost sometimes no light or hope shining through. You could call it cynical or you could call it accurate. Of course, it's a dark comedy, but do you ever have discussions in the room where you're like, guys, we're going too dark here? Not really. And in fact, the question is, how dark can we go? And it's interesting, um, David Mandel, who's the current showrunner who took over from Armando, and the last, this was always going to be our last season, and we had plotted out in the room and even started writing episodes um, before September a year ago when Julia got her diagnosis, right. and which led to a year of, can- of breast cancer and led to a year-long postponement. At the time, we broke story then and assembled that season and pitched it successfully to HBO. Uh, Trump had been president like six or seven months. Right. I should say to those who've never watched Veep, we never reference current yeah. politicians. We never mention any politician after Reagan. There's no mention of Hillary or Obama or Trump or anyone. We don't. It's not satire in that mm-hmm. way. So we had a year of hiatus, and I came out here. Um, in May, as we were, as Julia was getting better, and we were starting to think about gearing up again and scheduling it, and spent some time with Dave uh, Mandel, and he said to me, "You know, I'm. I continue to rework mentally what we did because here we have in in Selena Meyer, a vice president, then president, who's a horrible person. She's a <laughs> narcissist." She's corrupt. She doesn't have any convictions about anything. She doesn't care about her constituents. All she cares about herself. Yeah! Oh, my God! That is so great for me! And the country? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what I meant. Good job, Amy. Thank you. Dependence on foreign oil ended by me. Could you stop that? Yeah, he said the thing is, in our show, she is punished for it. She gets humiliated. Right. She loses elections. Now we have someone in the White House who's worse than Selena yeah. and has been rewarded for it. And how do we how do we do that without doing Trump or without doing something stupid, you know, and obvious? How'd you solve that? You'll see. But yeah. I think in season I, seven, yeah. You'll 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 see. But th- that led to a process of rebreaking the season, changing oh, really? the ending of the series. Uh we had a wonderful ending under the previous version. Now we have a different one, also wonderful in my opinion. Wow. We're shooting it in a few weeks. Um, but it was really took a lot of angst and a lot of thought. And it is dark. It is. It, it has mm-hmm. to be dark. I think it's funny, but it is not looking for hope. Where, 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 it, no one's going around looking for hope. <laughs> it is very dark, to me almost in a Kubrick kind of way, um, mm. but very much our show, and uh, so people will see for themselves. But it's you have to respond to it. You don't have to, but something when we see what's happening in America, we can't just pretend it's not. We're certainly not going to put a gloss on it. With Succession, it's similarly what I would call a dark comedy. If possible, it's darker. Mm-hmm. I didn't know when I first started watching it what exactly I was watching. I didn't know if it was like it had the uh, the tone of a dark drama. And then it just gets funnier as you go along. And I'm curious, 
if you and Jesse Armstrong, the show's creator, and the rest of the producers, how you conceived that tone and what you were going for. That tone is very much uh, Jesse's tone. And that is his his tone, but it takes a while for much of the audience couldn't figure it out at first. And and part of that is also just the sort of the way we think of American television. If it's an hour drama mm-hmm. on a network like HBO, you have a certain expectation about it. And um, well, you set up everything in the first episode that's going to then come along, right? Exactly. You, you guys didn't do that. Yeah, exactly. And that's the way he writes. And so there is it's just turning the knob in a in a somewhat different way. Uh, and I think it's such a special voice. And I'm glad that people are you know finding their way into it without having it laid on a, with a trial at the beginning. Everyone we could, we paid off. We hushed up. There are emails. There's correspondence. It's ready to blow. It's a fucking time bomb. So what are you, you going to do? I don't know. I don't know. Because anyone I ask for advice, I make complicit. If you know about this stuff, you should tell. But you can't because you're going to spread the virus. So I have the virus, don't I? One of the challenges, I think, though, is um, I'm curious how you address this, is the, the narrative problem that all of the, all of the characters are essentially unlikable. Well, you know, a lot of the rev- early reviews, ultimately people started sort of recanting and changing their tune. But, you know, I cannot write this. I cannot watch a show where the people are all this hateful and there's yeah. not no one to root for. Of course you can. Because... Well, you can and people are. But yeah. uh, Jesse's resp- – someone asked us that Jesse interview and he said, you know, I'd rather write people who are interesting. Uh-huh. I'm not interested – you know, he's not interested in writing characters based on whether they're likable or not. I have to say we never really gave it – that issue of consideration. But look at Veep. Characters in Veep are despicable, not just Selena. And yet, is there any more beloved actor in America than than Julia? Right. But if if it's written, so it's so funny, and it's played by someone with such intrinsic humanity, you can't bring yourself to hate her. And so, you know, or you love to hate her. And you look at someone like Kieran Culkin, to take a handy example, or mm-hmm. Brian Cox. Yeah. You're compelled by, even if you think they're horrible people, there's something compelling about them. And that's where art comes in. And these characters are not running for public office. You don't have to like them. We don't, you know, we're not running, we're not doing a broadcast network show of the old school where you want to pander to the audience and make everybody lovable. Last thing I want to ask you about is just um, your own cultural influences, including like favorite books and, and, and kind of unsung movies you think uh, have either inspired you or, you know, you're just amazed by how they got made. One of my favorite novels is I, Claudius, and I was thinking about it when I was reading Greatest Story Ever Sold, because then you have this this sense of an actual reliable narrator who is one of history's actors, to use the Karl Rove quote from Greatest Story. But I'm just curious. It's funny. I, Claudius, by the way, is a much-discussed book in the succession writer's room. Ah, or, or or at least the television adaptation of the Graves. Uh, yeah, and that was a book I my was a favorite of my mother's, and I read as a as a teenager and loved. But I would say um, the influences on me are weird in terms of books. The book that changed my life was a memoir I read when I was ten years old, Moss Hart's Act One, which would have captured everything for me about. Growing up in an unhappy family, discovering the theater and wanting to leave home and go into another life. And it really, in my own memoir, uh, Ghostlight, 
you know, declare within it is to some extent my own humble version of variation on that theme beyond sort of certain classic American literature, like particularly like Scott Fitzgerald, which had a big impact on me. I, things that really sort of in the formative years of myself as becoming an adult reader, like starting in my adolescence, reading Philip Roth and, you know, starting with the short stories in Goodbye Columbus, which came out yeah. when I was, was I like don't know. 61, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. So I was like 11 or 12. The golden period of John Cheever, reading his stories in The New Yorker, Richard Yates, mm-hmm. Salinger, particularly like, sure, Catching the Rye when I said, but, you know, I remember vividly reading Franny and Zoe when they were published in, in, you know, in Nine Stories. So a certain kind of modern American literature certainly got to me. In terms of um, the rest of it, theaters, movies, and television, I mean, the, the effect of theater on me was profound. Yeah. And, and um, there are strange things that had an effect on me. The original Hal Prince production of Cabaret, which was never duplicated, including the revivals he did in, or the Fosse movie, I saw it in its tryout, not as a take-a-taker. I was in Boston doing college interviews as a senior in high school, and it hadn't even been reviewed yet. I went to a preview at the Schubert Theater in Boston, and when Joel Gray came out and sang Willkommen, I thought the show, I, I was with a, a girl who was a camp friend of mine, we thought the show was in German. We didn't even understand what was <laughs> happening. And then we Whoa. were like, oh, my God. You know, it was like, very, and it was also very rough then. It hadn't been polished. Um, the original production of Raising the Sun, I saw... It, it did a post-Broadway tour without Poitier, but with the rest of the original cast, like Ruby Dee and Ossie Davis and Diana Sands. It played the National, which had famously, before my time, until the early 50s, had been a segregated theater. Mm. And this is before I, my mother took me to see it, and I must have been 10 or 11, and suddenly I understood the whole racial... It's a wonderful play. It's still, to me, a great play, but the whole racial world with Washington was a segregated southern city, and I went to its public schools that were essentially segregated schools, not suburban schools. Um, That had an enormous impact to me, and so many things in the theater had such a, melded the idea of of sort of having a social social consciousness and art. Um, Frank Rich, I have so enjoyed this conversation. Me too. Thank you for doing it. And uh, for all the listeners out there, you should watch Veep. You should watch Succession if you're not turned on to it. It's an amazing show. Read Frank Rich all the time in New York Mag and on the website. Uh, Read his books, including The Greatest Story Ever Sold. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Frank.